I've been trying to figure out really how to uh, introduce this morning's message. Uh, it's been kind of brewing for several weeks now, maybe even a couple of months. Um, and I have to tell you, it, it has been stirred within me, and, and I think in many ways can identify with some of your own feelings and reflections. In terms of what's happening in our nation, uh, what we are measuring as uh, responses to um, a variety of circumstances that have manifested uh, demonstrations, expressions of different opinions, um, representing not only diverse groups, but division. And that has troubled me. And I say all that to be careful not to make this a political statement, but to find what I believe the Lord would have us to do during times such as these. Um, I'll be perfectly honest. This is not... uh, This is going to be difficult for me because I'm still sorting through some of this stuff as to how as a a believer and how as a a citizen of a nation and how as a member of a church, uh, how am I to respond to what has all the evidences of um, differing positions uh, that seem to, to characterize our times? And so before we go any further... I know I need prayer, and I would ask that you not only pray with me, but would you also pray for me? Let's pray together. Lord, may it be that as our world seems to shake us and sometimes disturb us and maybe even uh, upset us, that we remember you are above it all, and at the same time, you are in all of it. You have promised never to leave us. You have promised never to forsake us. You have promised to be with us as your children and providing everything we need to cope with all the things that the world may throw at us, of all the things that life may may deal us as circumstances that are beyond our control. We know, Lord, you are in control. Let us have an understanding this morning, Father, of what you would have us to be today in this world as followers of Jesus Christ, men and women who profess a special unity as a body of believers and within fellowship and in union with you. So guide us, Lord, through your word that we may be where you would have us to be in times such as these. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was, uh, again, a few weeks ago, Jan was reading um, from William Barclay's commentary on the Gospel of Luke. And she ran across uh, a particular phrase or passage or uh, uh, some of his words that I think in many ways, at least at that time, spoke to me as to maybe we ought to give some thought to where we as Christians need to fit into this, this, this world that represents diversity and, um, and come to grips with our role as ambassadors for Christ. I want to read this quote 
to you from William Barclay's commentary on the Gospel of Luke. And I, I can't give you the exact references that he was uh, commenting on when he, when he wrote these words. But he writes, It is one of the supreme achievements of Jesus that he can enable the most diverse people to live together without in the least losing their own personalities or qualities. There is nothing which the church needs more than to learn how to yoke in common common harness the diverse temperaments and the qualities of different people. If we are failing, it is our own fault. For in Christ, it can be done. And it has been done. And we as a church, I think, need to give attention to that this morning. I sorted through a number of verses that wanted to, that I, I chose that somehow would support my position. And I realized that's not the way you go about preparing a sermon. <laughs> so I put it off the side for quite a while. And again, I went back to the scriptures and began looking for those illustrations of where there was examples of diversity, of where there was um, a struggling with things that just weren't familiar and common to to what people necessarily embrace, even those closest to Christ. And I landed on two verses um, in the Gospel of Luke, and it's a simple conversation between John and Jesus. And I'll read these verses to you. It's Luke 9, verses 49 and 50. John answered, Master, We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. I want to be careful not to read too much in in these two verses. Yet I think there's enough evidence there, and particularly when you understand a little bit of the the very character and nature of our disciples, I think we can allow some interpretation as to what might have been behind John's concern. John doesn't even recognize this person by name, just says someone. So there isn't any real identity with who this guy is, except he is someone. He wasn't one of the disciples, he was someone else, at least in John's eyes. John may have even tagged him as a charlatan because during the time of Christ, there were others who were going about performing miracles and claiming their own positions as being those who could be leading multitudes. And so John's concern might be that this guy isn't the real deal, that he might be just playing the role claiming the authority of Jesus. And because of that, we tried to stop him. Well, that wasn't really the reason why John tried to stop him or the disciples tried to stop him. They tried to stop him because he is not one of us. I think John's words can be taken to heart as being genuine in a sense that there's a concern for the integrity of the ministry that John is concerned about those who maybe in a flippant way would be claiming the powers, enabling them to do things 
as Jesus empowered them, or in other words, in the name of the Savior, Jesus Christ. But at the same time, I think John can represent some other concerns here that may not necessarily be all that flattering. John was talking about exclusion. And Jesus, in some ways, was dropping, uh, I think, a subtle hint to John that you might consider inclusion. John was concerned and, and, and probably reflecting kind of a suspicious nature there. What's this guy up to? What's behind what he's doing? Um, he's professing a likeness to my faith, but he isn't like me. So who is this guy anyway, and where is he coming from? John's complaint to Jesus about this stranger could give us the impression that there is a genuine concern about the ministry. And John, I think, makes this case, not just the fact that he's not happy about it, but he says, we, meaning that some of the other disciples weren't all that keen on it either. We tried to stop him, as if to give some kind of uh, uh, energy to his, his argument or defense of the faith. It isn't just me, Jesus, is asking this question. We are asking, who is this guy and what he's all about? He's a stranger to us. He's outside the circle. He isn't one of us. He wasn't chosen like the rest of us were chosen by you. This, this attitude of protecting what we would want to believe John was trying to do, to protect that which is precious to him, to protect that something that's very close to his heart, to ensure that a special relationship is going to be maintained and it's not going to be compromised in any way, can possibly find, I think, validity or purpose if you just think for a minute of where John has been through this, this journey with Jesus, walking with him and seeing the miracles and hearing the teachings and, and being impressed about who he is even in Christ. But we don't have time to go all the way back to the Gospels and walk through that. But if you just look at chapter 9, you get kind of a feeling of where John's coming from. The chapter begins with Jesus calling the 12 to a side. And he chooses to give them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, to go into the villages, to go into the communities and and be my ambassador of what can be accomplished in the name of Jesus Christ. And the ministry was successful because if you read the the parallel text of this, they, they, they are celebrating, they're rejoicing of what has been accomplished as Jesus entrusted this ministry to the 12. Doesn't talk about anybody else, it's just the 12 here. And then you read down a little bit further. Another piece of that, though, another piece of that is that when Jesus sent them out, they were really really sent with a prophetic charge. Proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God. That is a powerful message, and it belonged to the disciples on behalf of Christ. But then if you read down a little bit further in the text, we come across the miracle of feeding the 5,000. I can imagine John and the 12 felt pretty good about it, after they found their role in that miracle. They questioned whether what they were supposed to do, what could be done, but Jesus made them again 
his, his ambassadors, his, his servants of goodwill, as Jesus took the bread and he took the fish and he broke it and blessed it and he gave it to his disciples to distribute to the multitude. I can imagine John felt pretty good about that, to be someone who could carry out the very commands of Christ before a multitude of people. And then we have this very, very personal and isolated incident of where Peter, James, and John are with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, those closest to Jesus. Peter, James, and John with Jesus as he's talking to Moses and Elijah. Peter, James, and John under this umbrella of a cloud when God's booming voice shouts to these men, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. John, having the opportunity to be able later to testify that I heard the voice of God. All these incidences, I think, could make John feel pretty special. Chosen. Selected. Brought into confidence. Trusted, empowered, given authority, witnessing and being part of the distribution of miracles. I think any of us would feel pretty good about that. And there's another little thing here that when John is identified as in the list of disciples, he and his brother James are also recognized as the sons of thunder. Hmm. That ought to tell us something about John. He's got his gloves on. He's going he's to take a stand. He might be quick on the trigger, but he knows what's right. And he'll get in your face for it. If you don't believe me, just read down a little bit further. When Jesus is being, they're preparing for Jesus to go through Samaria, and the Samaritan village didn't accept him, and what did Peter, I mean, what did James and John want to do? Call down fire from heaven. <laughs> Blow him off the face of the earth. Take a stand for what I believe. In this, in this brief conversation with John and Jesus, I think something begins to surface that characterizes what we see even within our fellowship, our relationships with Christ, our relationship with the church, our relationship with one another as believers. I think there's an element of pride. I think there's an element of jealousy. I think there's, an, there's, there's evidence of, of wanting to be in control. We can all identify that with, with, I think, the experience when we see someone who is gifted. And that can be within the body of believers. Gifted as uh, someone who is a good teacher. Gifted as someone who has uh, just the, the greatest and most Gracious gift of hospitality, gifted. They, they can do anything and do it well. And there's a degree of envy there, and that isn't necessarily bad. But the danger is, is when the envy slips into jealousy. When we look at the giftedness of that individual and then take a kind of a look at our own giftedness and think, hmm, <laughs> They're not any more gifted than I am. Matter of fact, my gift is maybe more important than their gift. There is a real, real danger. 
And somehow, comparing ourselves to one another as one is more important than the other. And this is the very thing that the Apostle Paul addressed in his book, in, in, in 1 Corinthians, when he's talking about the body, the body to function as, as a variety of people, or better yet, the, the, the analogy being the body and many members. And remember Paul's teaching, no member is more important than any other member. That each member is dependent upon the other member to accomplish the function for which the body has been assigned. When the body works together with these varying parts that, that uh, have their own special function, their own giftedness, um, it, it serves as a complement to one another. It serves as a, a completion of one another. It serves as a, an accomplishment of the whole. It brings us together to do what we all are intended to do as a body. That's how the church is supposed to function. And there is not one member to be held higher than any other member within the body of Christ. Control. I, I have visited many, many churches in our denomination. And there are those churches that are being controlled not by the head of the church, Jesus Christ, but possibly by a, a, a strong family, a, a history of the church. This family founded the church. This family leads the church. And if you're going to do a thing, you better check it out with the family that owns the church. Or, or just those members who just don't, I mean, those, those leaders that just don't go away. <laughs> They've had that position for 40 years. And no one's going to take it away from them. They are in control. They're not ready to surrender it. Why is control so important? Well, number one, it guarantees conformity. We're all going to do it this way. It also ensures the fact that everything is predictable. We know what's coming next, and there are no surprises. But I tell you what it also brings is a stifled life that has been assigned to a church to live for Christ, not simply to exist for themselves. And one I didn't list with our, our earlier identities are these elements that might be somehow uh, recognized in, in John's concern is fear. Fear. John may be afraid of this man, this, this someone, of what he might try to bring into this circle. John might be fearful of a number of things. I, I can't read into the text what that might be, but I know for a fact that when we are challenged by someone who is different than us and yet somehow claims a likeness to us because of a shared faith, there is some hesitancy there. There's some, there's some caution there. There might be some fear as well. I have a friend... Um, Mike Owen, who now works for World Relief. Um, not to hurt anybody's feelings here, but I don't read all the posts on Facebook. Uh, I read those that I think can help me a little bit, and Mike is one of those that can do it. And he just recently quoted Thomas Merton, and I read it to you. A faith that is afraid of other people is not faith at all. Wow. 
It's interesting that this John, who is so defensive and so ready to protect and, and, and puts up those things that, that would insulate him from others, is the one who writes in his first letter, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. There's no room for fear of others if we are members of the body of Christ. If we love as we have been loved, there's nothing to be afraid of. It, it, this whole thing of inclusiveness or diversity or, or however you want to approach it, thing that, the very thing that John was wrestling with, there's some great illustrations around John if he would just stop and think for a minute. <laughs> John is a part of a group, a group of 12 guys. You talk about different. Just look at the personalities. You got Peter, Peter the impetuous one. Peter, who probably spends more time with his foot in his mouth than anything else, saying the wrong things at the wrong time. You've got Andrew. I love Andrew. Andrew, he, this is a guy, he is so charged. All he thing he can do is just bring people to Jesus. He brought his brother Peter to Jesus. He brought the little guy with the fish to Jesus. He brought the, uh, what was that? Uh, help me here. There was a group of he brought some other people to Jesus. I can't remember who they are. But it's there in the Bible. You better read it. <laughs> and then you got Thomas. Thomas tagged as the doubter. He had to see it for himself. And Thomas, really no different than the other disciples, but he was the one that was singled out because he expressed his doubt openly. And then, <laughs> and then you got James and John, sons of thunder. And the guys with a little short temper. Get in your face kind of guys. But it wasn't just personalities that made this group different. You want to make some comparisons of different people in this group? You compare Matthew to Simon the Zealot. Matthew, a Jew, yeah. But a Jew without a nation. A Jew who was taxing his own people for the very nation, Rome, that was oppressing his people. Matthew, completely dismissed by Jews as being one of their own because he was a tax collector. And then you got Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot, a a man that is branded with fury. He, He is committed to exterminate anybody who comes against the nation of Israel. This is what he lives for. He is a radical patriot, and he belongs to Israel, and don't doubt it for a minute. But these two guys, yoked together in the fellowship as disciples of Jesus Christ. And then you have Judas Iscariot, the one who was the embezzler, the one who was the traitor. And yet Jesus, Jesus included him in the 12. Christianity, the fellowship in the name of Jesus Christ, insists upon us to recognize the diversity of people around us and to embrace them as people, not as the enemy, not as a stranger, not as someone, 
but as people. Recognize them for who they are and what they have to contribute. But this can only be accomplished as we allow Christ to live within us. It's not something that we can do on our own, but it has to be Jesus within us. A passage of scripture that I land on because I need it so much to be reminded of this at Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. I have to live that way. I'm charged to live that way. You are charged to live that way if you profess Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. It isn't anything that is uh, of, of, uh, by chance that Christianity grew out of a group of people. We are, we are brought together as a group, as a body of believers, as different as we are. We are to be together in this effort that Christ has set before us. To what? To include others within this fellowship of believers. We are not to exclude anyone. We are to look for every opportunity to draw people in to this fellowship defined by Christ. It's interesting, this was again pointed out in some of the writings of Barclay, that Jesus, as he's, as he's demonstrating this pattern of bringing these people together, these men together, and calling others to follow, this was including others in the great work of the church. That it was, it was introduced at a time when the Pharisees were lording over the faith of the day, the religion of the day. And what does Pharisee mean? The separated ones. Those who chose to withdraw and make themselves, themselves something special and above others because how they presented themselves as being in touch with what God wanted. Jesus says to, says to John, don't stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. I believe with all my heart that these words of Jesus weren't words of indifference. Ah, let him go. Just don't worry about it. No, I read these words as including him, as he is professing or as, as he is you know, serving others, as this, this person is ministering in the name of Jesus. He wasn't claiming anything for himself from what we can read from this passage. He was pointing to Christ as the one who made the the uh, exorcism possible. We as followers need to make room for others in our pilgrimage of the faith. Um, there, are, there are many believers out there that aren't like you and me. They're different. I can remember, uh, the significance has really kind of sunk in one time when we were, we were in Honduras with Cristo Salva, our, our work in the Santa Barbara district. And this has been going on now for about 20, 25 years. And um, we had landed on a, a village. It's called Green Wells. And in, in the village was a, was a schoolhouse, a two-room schoolhouse. But they could only use one room because the roof had collapsed on the other room. So it's now a one-room schoolhouse. And, and 
a number of churches from the United States went down there to work with Cristo Salva and to help with food distribution and, and providing medicines and parasite meds and vitamin supplements and school supplies and to reconstruct the school and to, to give them safe drinking water. All, all these things were being done. And it's a great work, and we really felt good about it. But over a period of time, we recognized that these people that we went in to help we're doing really well. And, and we were feeling, ah, we must have really done a good job, only to find out the fact that we were in Honduras four times a year for two weeks each time, that while we weren't there, the Catholic Church was feeding those people and giving them school supplies and helping them with clothing. Now, what's the immediate reaction? What are the Catholics doing with our school? The body of Christ. And, I, and I'm not questioning the validity of the, the professing Catholic in Honduras over the validity of my faith. I have to believe that the, the motivation was to be for the sake of the people that was put before them to serve. And I can't question that. And it has to be honored. And it has to be recognized that they are, those people in Honduras were partnering with a, a group of people in the United States to do something right and doing it well. They did it through the sake of their church, through the, through the name of their church. We did it through the name, should I say it? Of the Advent Christian Church. When together, it should have been in the name of Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you, there is not one person, there is not one group, there is not one church, there is not one denomination that has a market on the truth. The truth belongs to Jesus. The unquestionable truth comes to him and through him. And only when we embrace that truth are we not only enabled and entrusted to share it with others as it should be shared, we are also positioned to embrace those who would want to recognize the same truth and profess the same truth, even when they do it differently than we do it. If you ever want an example of that, talk to Jeff Walsh about what happens on the mission field. You talk about doing things different. He can tell you one story after another, and, and, but it's all a part of the family of God. Let us be very, very careful and not too quick to exclude those others from the circle of fellowship that we have found in Jesus Christ, simply because that they are different or they don't quite see it the way we see it. Abraham Lincoln one time was criticized for being too courteous to his enemies. And he was reminded by his cabinet, those closest to him, his advisors, that it was his responsibility to destroy the enemy. To which Lincoln replied, and I quote, Do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? You see, that's what we are charged to do as the church, is to invite people to a friendship that we have found in Jesus Christ. As Christ has called us his friends, we are inviting others to also discover that friendship, to befriend them in the name of Jesus, and let it run where it will run. See what Christ wants to do to them, with them, for them, through the Holy Spirit. We are just simply to love one another. If, if you need some examples of that, just look up one another in the Bible 
and find out how we are to serve, love, forgive, care for, admonish, rebuke, name it, for one another. When men and women are really Christian, the diversity complements the body. It makes the body function like like it's supposed to. It is only in Christ that we can solve this problem as different as we are, enabling us to live together and to work together, to worship together, to serve together. If we really love him, we will also truly love one another. Now, this is the neatest thing about the whole story. Remember that son of thunder? That guy who had a hard time seeing anything but black and white? Listen to this. This is John's words in his first letter. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Let us love one another. Amen.